Hey, hey, everyone. Just a quick reminder that this episode is part of a series we are doing with Intel called No Place to Hide. And if you haven't listened to the first three episodes in this series, you should do that now. Just go back in your SoBob podcast feed and listen to the first three episodes of No Place to Hide from the end of last year. You'll be glad you did. We should also warn you that in this episode you're about to listen to, there are multiple references to violence and domestic abuse, so parts of it may be difficult to hear. Okay, on with the show. Spoke Media. Why do we have to climb all these stairs? Because it's safer on the second floor. We can hear and see things that we couldn't from the ground. See? Here's our front door. And look, right over there, we can see every person that walks in at the front desk. And there, those are the other stairs, so we can get to either one if we need to leave. It's like being spies. Spies always have to plan an escape route. And they always have to watch their back. I'm gonna hop in the shower really fast, then we'll get you ready for bed. Okay, Agent Noah? Okay, Agent Mom. I'm gonna be lookout. You do that. Take notes of every person and car you see. That's what good spies do. Got it. All right, sweetheart. I'll be right back. I'm coming, Noah. I think it's Michael. What? No, no, there's no way. Look. Get your things, grab your backpack, go. This is impossible. This can't be happening. Okay, okay. We're gonna go out the back then. Stay behind me, hold my hand. And when we get to the bottom of the stairs, we're gonna run as fast as possible to the car, okay? Okay. Can you do me a favor? Can you keep your eyes on the door? See if someone comes out? Uh Uh-huh. I'm gonna drive. Wait! What? What? What's happening? It's a man. It's not him. It's someone else. What? I got it wrong. It's not Michael. Oh. Oh, honey, that's okay. I'm sorry, Mom. Don't you ever apologize for trying to keep us safe. We always have to be ready. This was just a drill. A test for us, to make sure we're good spies. And you know what, Noah? Yeah? You're the best spying partner I could ask for. And look at this. We get a head start on our next leg. Even better. Mom, are you sure? Don't you need sleep? Nah, I'm okay. Not sleeping is my superpower.
Hey, Noah. Hey, honey, wake up. I have to get gas. It won't be long, but I need you to be awake, okay? I need you to lock the door while I'm outside, okay? Okay. Keep the door locked no matter what. I will be right back. It's okay, honey. It's just... Oh, my God. Mom! Noah! Stay in the car! (sighs) (sighs) Sir! Stay in the vehicle! That's my kid. Sir! I need you to stop! That is my child. Sir, remain calm. I am calm. Thank you. I'm trying... Okay, we're gonna get out of here. How did he find us? I don't know, sweetie. I don't know how. Was he spying on us too? I don't... Hang on. Oh my god. It's a tracker. You were right, Noah. Michael was spying on us too. But we're better spies than him. On to the next place. I'm Bob Sullivan. And I'm Aaliyah Tavakolian. And we'd like to just take a moment to think about all of the Aarons and the Noahs out there. If you or a loved one have experienced or are experiencing domestic or intimate partner violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. They also have an incredible website at thehotline.org with tons of resources for survivors. That's T-H-E hotline.org. They can help you find the safe, non-judgmental care that you deserve. We talk a lot on this show about how tech and privacy invasions have made our lives harder, but we don't want to forget that there are a lot of people working to fix that. In this episode, which we've nicknamed the Ghost of Christmas Future, we're going to talk about what the world will look like in a decade if nothing is done to put some guardrails around invasive technologies. It'll get dark. But the second half of this episode deals with what we can do to change course. What rules, what innovations might save us from this very dark future?
Since this topic is heavy, we thought we'd kick off the discussion with something a little bit lighter. Yes, thank God. Tinder babies. Bob, I have not stopped thinking about this since last week. What the F are Tinder babies? <laughs> I was at a privacy law conference recently, and this guy named Nick Johnson, who's the editor-in-chief at Axios, he was speaking about these crazy situations that technology has created. And he has this insane, beautiful, disturbing story he tells about Tinder babies. It's a thought exercise that led me to Tinder babies, where you sort of started. It's like, okay, what are the pieces of my life? What are the apps on my phone that I can't see into that are telling me to do things, that are surfacing uh, what I should order for dinner, or how I should get home, or what I should watch on TV? Wait, I thought Brandon and I fight about what to watch on TV every night. Yeah, and the algorithms decide what you're going to fight about. Ugh. One of the funnest ones where you think about the power of algorithms over our lives is all this data that's being hoovered up about us and put in these apps and put in our phones uh, and then how it governs what we do, sort of how we behave, sort of like how we walk and how we watch and how we read and like sort of what we eat and who we talk to. And as you sort of start unspooling um, kind of all these futuristic things, you realize that there are probably people walking the earth who are created by the algorithm in Tinder because they were on the dating app and the dating app's algorithm matched them with someone else and those people fell in love and had a kid and created life. Um, and why did those people meet? Well, who knows? That's inside the little black box in the Tinder app. Uh, and so that's sort of where the idea of, of Tinder babies comes from. But it, like, it speaks to um, hundreds, like, one of the, like all sorts of parts of our life governed by these sort of weird things. And what Tinder Babies is, is I think just a really humorous way of showing how much these things know, how much they control about our life, and sort of what the implications are. The implications for Tinder that they're creating human beings. Nothing necessarily nefarious about that, but I think it's very useful to think about it in that kind of context because there's millions of other things, other little elements of our lives they're controlling that we don't really understand. So yes, indeed, there are people walking the earth, crawling anyway, that are essentially the output of Tinder's algorithm. That's wild. You know, it is wild, but I think what's even more wild is that there's no person, no one who works at Tinder, no programmer, nobody, who really knows why that couple was matched up by the algorithm. Wait, wait, okay, so I was under the impression that if I'm a programmer and I create an algorithm, I know how the algorithm works, so I would know why someone would match with another person on my app. I mean, once upon a time, that might have been true. The early versions of this would have matched up people who both liked tennis or baseball or Thai food. But now it's so much more beyond that. And algorithms learn over time. So no one can really tell you why this site ranked high on a search engine, or why this job was matched with you, or why you were matched with a single person. Algorithms kind of have a mind of their own. They live in this little black box that really nobody knows what it's doing. I mean, and I, you know, use the metaphor all the time. An algorithm is like a helium balloon that you let go into the sky. It's going to float where it goes. It brings up a whole lot of other issues like algorithm bias, which we'll get to. But for the moment, I want to conjure up the ghost of Christmas future. Let's say it's 2030 and you and I are talking about privacy on a podcast. Okay, this is I can I can go here, Bob. This is a fun thought experiment. So I'm imagining it's 2030 and that by then everyone is online dating. So that would mean that everyone is a Tinder baby. Yeah, everyone's job is dictated to them by an algorithm which decides, based on some skills test, what you should be doing. Well, an algorithm is probably dictating where I live and who all my friends are. You're being matched by these matching services that are intelligent, but they're really directing your life in these incredibly intimate ways. Ugh, it's like, do we have any agency left in 2030? 
Yeah, and maybe this sounds extreme, right? But think about politics 2020. More and more algorithms have helped create bubbles where people on the left see only liberal news stories and people on the right see only conservative news stories. Yeah, so I guess it's not crazy to think that like 10 years from now, algorithms could be defining like every part of our lives. They'll all be bubbles, right? This is, I think, even more fundamental than we realize. In the first half of the series, we talked to Canadian privacy attorney Cinziana Gutu. She talked to us a lot about targeting and advertising and how they can actually create alternative realities. She also told us that subliminal ads have become so good, they really almost take our free will away. Something happened along the way where you have Facebook selling your information to ads, not really knowing what is happening with that information. And then fast forward now to the Cambridge Analytica fiasco where you are being targeted, not on a subconscious level, really, I mean, not literally, because you see the ads and you know what they are, but now you're kind of getting into this lack of choice. So that's now turning into the environmental free will uh, limitations, because you don't know what other options for news there are out there because Facebook's your go-to, and it's more convenient for you. Since he talked about in the 1970s, when for a hot minute, TV channels and advertisers started using subliminal ads, individual images that flashed so quickly people didn't even see them, but they talked directly to their unconscious. And everybody roared and protest over that, and we got rid of the idea very quickly. Something very similar happens now on the internet, and nobody seems to mind. So what happened? Where did, like, how did we go from being so sensitive about subliminal advertising to now where it's really totally unregulated, especially in social media? I don't know. I don't know where, what kind of what the bend was. It's probably a number of factors. Cindy's main argument is that all this manipulation is a much bigger deal than just putting us in liberal or conservative bubbles. All this manipulation is taking away our free will to make choices by ourselves. It's kind of like they've hacked our minds or hacked our souls. So it's not far-fetched that over your lifetime, a social media tool might slowly convince you that only this kind of person should be your friend or your life partner. Yeah, but I think that's really only the beginning. At that same privacy law conference I mentioned, I heard from a man who works at a neuromarketing company. They combine sensors like sweat sensors and eye-tracking tools and data collection. So this firm is pretty sure they can predict what you'll do even before you do it. Wait, like what does that mean? They combine all of this information about you and with a high degree of accuracy, they know you are quite likely to get up in the morning and go to this coffee shop or you're quite likely to react badly to the color green or the odds are high that you'll lose your job in the next six months or you'll cheat on your wife based on all of these factors. I can imagine that that technology could be incredibly useful to, say, an oppressive regime. Yeah, that's where he went with this conversation. So today, we worry a lot about facial recognition software, which we know is being used to identify protesters and crowds, like the crowds in Hong Kong. Well, he talked about algorithms that were smart enough to predict who was most likely to leave their homes and attend a protest before the protest. So the government could stop a protest before it even starts by simply arresting a few key people, or just locking them in their homes, or feeding them such well-tuned propaganda that they never become rebellious in the first place. So in 2030, maybe we aren't talking about privacy at all because I've been hacked. 
I've been hacked, Bob, and I think that everything is fine. Or what if they feed me news stories so I start to think that all the reporting you've done is fake news and I don't want to talk to you anymore. So I never even become curious. And I would be very sad if you thought I was fake news and you didn't want to talk to me. But I know. I would never think that. But I might if it was convincing enough. I think you might. All this is very possible. It's coming. It's absolutely coming. Nick Johnson, our expert on Tinder babies, says it like this. I mean, we're, we're just handing over more and more of this sort of information, more and more of this sort of control. It's like sort of we're yielding so much to the sort of the decisions we make in that. As in when I pick up my phone, like Elon Musk has a hilarious way, not a hilarious way, like I think a prescient way of, of talking about this. We're sort of like the melding of uh, sort of like we're becoming cyborgs. And it's sort of like we're essentially already that. Like when you wake up in the morning and you pick up your phone, it's sort of like now that becomes the window on the world to you. And how much of that, like if the screen on your phone essentially becomes the window of the way you view the world, what is being served up? In that, okay. Well, now it has all that kind of information. Then you can get you can take an incredibly dystopian view of that. Where if I hand over agency to ordering food to my refrigerator, so my refrigerator knows all that. What are my refrigerator's privacy policies? Is my refrigerator supposed to share that information with my employer, uh, with my health insurance agency? Uh, with my uh, family members, with my doctor, to know like whether or not I'm eating too much ice cream or I'm not getting enough vegetables. Like, what what am I allowed to sort of keep to my own? And then will the refrigerator begin to change what it orders? You could sort of follow these rabbit holes down on all sorts of uh, these kinds of choices that we now make and that are slowly yielding to sort of these algorithms that control our lives. Algorithms that control our lives. <laughs> I'm not really sure I'm very excited to live in 2030, Bob. Tell me you know people who are working on this. Yeah, yeah, I know a lot of them. But let's just take a moment in the way that, that you and I do, Aaliyah, to remember the other side of this story. Tinder babies might sound weird, but think of all the lonely, single, isolated people, maybe people who lived in remote rural areas who used to have almost no prospects for finding love, but who now find it online. I mean, that's very beautiful. It is really beautiful. Or the fact that, you know, if you're in an uncomfortable situation or maybe you're drunk at a bar late at night and you just need to get out, you can summon a car who will drive you home safely. And you can share cars very easily. You can get hotels in places you could never afford before. Forget a hotel. You can stay in a shared house. Yeah. You can find other people to do that with and much cheaper and, and more easily than we've ever done before. And speaking of finding other people, I think one of the most magical things is we're able to find people who are suffering from the same things that we are, right? We're able to feel a little less alone. I think that's the biggest one of all. People who are isolated in the past can find each other now and find communities of support in ways that never could have happened before. So that's the best thing about the internet. Yeah, it's a real support system. It can be. So this reminds me so much of that very first episode of SoPob where we discussed internet, good or bad. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a conversation that's kind of always going on in my head, right? Like the good and the bad of technology. It's constantly at the forefront of my mind. Okay, so we can't forget all the great things that tech does, but the truth is we've let this helium balloon of technology innovation just float up to the sky on its own for too long. We've let companies do pretty much whatever they want with the most intimate details of our lives. It's time we as a society were a lot more thoughtful about this. It's time we had a big public debate and made sure that future technologies help people, are used for good, and stop them from being used to harm us. Yes, yes, Bob, I am so inspired by this, but how do we make that happen? Well, I mean, it's a big question, but for a lot of people, it begins with finally creating a federal law in the U.S. that governs privacy. For a lot of folks, this is way overdue. 
We were concerned that we didn't want to, you know, kill the the golden goose at the beginning and really over-regulate what was then a yet-to-be-imagined kind of e-commerce economy. This is Christine Varney, who worked on privacy issues during the Clinton administration. We met her in an earlier episode. So I think a lot of the principles we laid out were good and solid, but I think that the legislation that we said we needed to wait and see what was needed, we waited too long. There should have been legislation enacted, and it should have probably been enacted in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. The delay comes with a cost. Mark Groman, the tech consultant from last episode, says we are 10 to 15 years overdue for a federal privacy law. And what is so disappointing is that we have just forfeited the leadership role on this issue across the entire world. And for me personally, that is disappointing to see that Europe has overtaken this issue. The whole world is looking to Europe and we have no cred on any global stage on this topic. So we must have a omnibus privacy law. Well, no time like the present. Just save the future. Okay, so we need rules. Maybe a federal law, maybe something else entirely. But I remember from the first half of this series, the tragedy that was privacy policies. I mean, no one reads them. And if you do read it and say no, then you usually just can't use the product. Right. And this gets to the core problem we have right now, I think. The burden for all this stuff falls on consumers. They're asked once to give their consent to data collection, and then forevermore, companies can do whatever they want with their data. We did a whole episode on the folly of consent. It just doesn't work. Who knows what you've consented to when you click OK on iTunes or when you buy a fancy new fridge? Mark Groman has very strong feelings about consent not working. Well, we know it doesn't work because people are constantly stunned, shocked, angry, dismayed, um, and horrified around how their information is being used. When we asked him about our ghost of 2030, he was even more animated about why our old-style privacy policies will be useless in the future. The fact is, by 2030, almost all of the information we're going to be talking about will be data that is or has been observed and data that has been inferred. We are way beyond a world where we're providing information and making decisions about it to a known entity. And even there are other cases where perhaps a third party might give information about me to an entity. Maybe it's a relative or a friend or you purchase a profile. We're done. That is history. Any law, any rule, any regime that is going to thoughtfully address privacy going forward must grapple with this observation, inference world we're heading in. And consent doesn't do it, and it cannot do it. Just clicking OK is not OK. And when we think about it... How do we handle a world where I walk into my neighbor's home, they have sensors everywhere. There are cameras all over my neighbor's house. Well, I can't consent when I walk in. Do I not ever visit a neighbor or a supermarket? Just imagine having to click I agree every time you walk past a camera. It would take up like every part of your day. And then I wonder how someone like Aaron from the top of our episode would operate in this world, clicking I disagree at every single camera she sees. That feels impossible. And I'd be afraid to even go outside. This is why Mark says the age of consent rules are over. This is an important point. We've moved beyond the age of data collection. Our our faces, our whereabouts, even our DNA, it's already been collected. The future is about observation and inference. That's where a lot of people think the rules need to go. 
Plenty of folks would describe this as a use model of privacy regulation versus a consent model. So instead of the burden being on just getting a yes from a consumer and then doing whatever you want with their data, the burden would be, here's what you can do with data that's collected and here's what you can't. This is important because it puts the burden on companies rather than on consumers. So let's talk for a moment about what a federal privacy law would look like. Susan Grant works at the Consumer Federation of America, where she heads up privacy advocacy work. She's got pretty specific ideas about what should be in a federal law. And she says that one of the most important things is that we need to flip the default from companies being able to collect and use our personal data for whatever they want, as long as they describe it in a privacy policy that few of us are ever going to read and no one understands, to companies not being able to collect and use our data for purposes beyond what we gave it to them for, unless we specifically agree. The notice and opt-out model that businesses favor places the burden on us when it really belongs on the companies that want to make money off of us. The burden should be with the people who make the money, who know the most about the data. That makes sense. Also, any federal law really needs to deal with the problem of algorithm bias. Why did Tinder pick these people for you to date? Why are you only getting these apartment ads or these college ads or these job opportunities or these jail sentences? We've already discovered that algorithms which help judges sentence criminals end up developing the same kind of racial biases that people do. And now today you've got Silicon Valley companies coming in. This is consumer advocate Ed Mirzwinski. And there's questions about the algorithmic bias that is baked in to the formulas that they create. And that's why any future privacy law has got to really give any government regulator at any level the opportunity and the right to dig into those algorithms, to look at the secret sauce. There should be no Coca-Cola formula. There should be the right of the agency to look under the hood and figure out whether there are biases built in. Ed's right. We should have the right to know what's working for or against us. But this isn't going to be easy. Things move so fast in tech. Probably while you were listening to this podcast, dozens of new products were created that might violate your privacy. We're in the digital age, the information age. Data is everything. It is being collected, created, shared, processed, stored, analyzed, used in ways that two years ago, no one contemplated even in Silicon Valley. I know from speaking with my colleagues who work at every major tech company, my peers who are data scientists, that the way things are being used today weren't contemplated three years ago and where we'll be in three years from now, nobody knows. Mark Groman hates the word privacy, just like I hate the word privacy. Whether we're talking about consent or use or consumer rights, when we're talking about privacy missteps, what we're really talking about is abuse of people. We're talking about times when technologies and corporations harm people, intended or unintended. What we're talking about is the harmful uses of information for people. That's what we're talking about, and that's how the discussion needs to be framed so that when a company is developing a business model, thinking about a new way to process information, they're thinking about, okay, we see a benefit here for maybe it's for the company, maybe there's a benefit to society or an individual, but what are the potential harms that can come from 
this processing. So I've said this before. We risk losing a whole generation of great technologies to fear. Right around New Year's Day, there was this 50-car pileup in Virginia, cars just smashing into each other one after the other in the fog. There's all this great new technology, collision avoidance technology, that literally will hit the brakes before you hit someone, or lights go off if you're about to change lanes into another car, right? There's no reason today for a 50-car pileup, but all of these great technologies, their adoption has been slowed because automakers really jealously guard their rights to the data that all these sensors collect. They don't want to have privacy policies around it. They want to be able to use it for all sorts of things. Car companies actually think of themselves as data companies now instead of manufacturers. And the fight over their privacy issues revolving car data is preventing our cars from being as safe as they could be. We're going to see this fight over and over again in technology. Privacy arguments are going to slow down adoption. And as a result, you know, people are going to die. We're going to have all sorts of terrible consequences. And it's all going to be slowed down because of arguments over privacy. Ugh. I mean, something has to break. Doing nothing isn't really an option. 2030 is going to be here before we know it. My perspective on this is that I believe in the value of data. I think the information economy offers an amazing future for America and the world. But in order for us to actually leverage those benefits and get the maximum out of data, we need rules because we need to minimize the harm and the negative effects. And until we've got baseline rules of the road in our country through a federal privacy law, then we're just, you know, we're going in the wrong direction. And we're going to find ourselves in a place where no one's going to be happy. Bob, won't companies fight against this? Oh, you bet they will. But In some cases, they've stepped forward to say they'd support a law. Intel, our sponsor, has written model privacy legislation. The Business Roundtable, a bunch of tech firms, has signed a letter to Congress outlining privacy principles. We covered that in the first half of this series. Consumer groups are skeptical of that, but all this shows that there's definitely momentum for something, even among people in the tech industry. So, Bob, it sounds good, this idea of passing a federal law. But if you haven't noticed, Washington doesn't seem very effective right now. (laughs) Catherine Crump is worried that Congress maybe can't do it. Given, um, you know, who the president is right now and what's happening in Congress, I don't have a lot of hope that the federal government is going to enact meaningful privacy protections right now. Um, That's unfortunately been true for a long time. I used to get invited to testify once in a while before Congress about, um, you know, should there be more legislation to protect location privacy data, so like GPS data that tracks individuals. And I kept noticing that it was always like an investigatory hearing. It was like the same hearing every year. And I was like, when is this going to go anywhere? And the answer is nothing ever happened because Congress just isn't particularly um, in a good place for actually proactively enacting policy right now. But I think something about the Trump presidency and the intervention of Russia in the election has made people pay more attention to data security and privacy issues. So I'm not going to hold my breath on Congress, but I am going to turn uncharacteristically optimistic, Aaliyah. Amazing, because this rarely happens. Catherine Crump is the one who connected me to Brian Hofer, who had that terrifying run-in with the cops in the apparently but definitely not stolen rental car. Yes, yes. A few years ago, he created the little privacy organization that could. And I love this. I love the story of how he got started out of nothing. I also am the chair of the City of Oakland's Privacy Advisory Commission. And 
that's kind of where everything started and became my launching pad. In June of 2013, this unknown contractor named Edward Snowden hit the front pages, you know, with the first revelation about the NSA spying. Two weeks later, the city of Oakland revealed plans that they'd been working on in secret for about six years to have a citywide mass surveillance project. This would have facial recognition, license plate readers, shot spotter audio. Uh, They're going to put 700 additional cameras in public housing and schools, uh, sort of all aggregated into one big giant uh, data center. They were going to share it with federal partners and others. And um, this was also coming on the heels of Occupy Oakland and just a lot of other civil unrest from you know the various police brutality uh, that we'd seen all across the country. There were clashes at Occupy events all across the country back then. And so it was the absolute worst timing for the city of Oakland, of course, but Uh, The good news was that there was a lot of activists around and a lot of energy to say, this is inappropriate for Oakland. And it was the first time I ever walked inside City Hall ever. I'd been in Oakland for about 15 years, and I had never talked to an elected official, uh, at least not, you know, in a formal capacity or lobbying capacity. You know, I just kind of watched Occupy, you know, when I would drive around downtown or something, but I was never part of it. But then, Brian says, the combination of Snowden and this proposed citywide mass surveillance project got him off the couch. And so I walked inside and um, kind of organically became uh, one of the leaders of this opposition. And uh, short story long, we won. We were able to build a big coalition together. And of course, we had, you know, the people that know what they're talking about, like the ACLU and the EFF and others. But there's actually a lot of local, smaller orgs, uh, the the people that actually lived in Oakland and and that just didn't feel as appropriate for their community. And we were able to convince the council uh, by the narrowest of margin. It was a 5-4 tiebreaker vote uh, to scuttle the project. And out of that came a temporary ad hoc privacy commission. I was appointed to that and I eventually chaired it. And then we convinced the city to turn it into a permanent body and to give us oversight of all surveillance equipment. And I've been the chair ever since its inception. Uh, So it was, you know, kind of a a, a random, uh, very fortuitous uh, pivot in my life. It's a grassroots privacy organization. I picture them having, like, bake sales and talking about police cameras. <laughs> That's kind of true. When we talked to him, I wondered aloud if this kind of thing could only work in crazy California. But he wasn't too sure about that. Since then, you know, we have seven of these surveillance ordinances around the Bay Area. There's a... 21 other jurisdictions outside of California that are now working on the same thing. I have the privilege of flying all across the country and, you know, either lecturing at law schools and conferences or actually consulting with cities now that are trying to replicate the Oakland model. So Brian told me that the key to persuading community groups all around the country to get involved in an effort like this is to tailor the message because privacy means different things to different communities. In Oakland, the big concern was First Amendment rights, the protest culture, and perhaps the use of facial recognition to suppress protests. But somewhere else, the big concern might be just waste of taxpayer money. A lot of money is being spent on these surveillance technologies, and they don't necessarily even work as advertised. And then maybe somewhere else, the concern is the spy culture. Amazon ring cameras everywhere, and neighbors being encouraged to spy on each other. So all around the country, he talks to communities who are considering starting an organization like this, and that's pretty much what he does with his time now. We have only ever had one no vote in the entire country on this model. It is so perfectly pragmatic, elegant. Uh, We all work off this ACLU model 
The acronym is CCOPS, Community Control Over Policing Surveillance. What it really just says is rather than, you know, the traditional unilateral decision making by police, which is, you know, typically what happens, they introduce a policy, say this is how we're going to use this equipment, and the council just rubber stamps it, we're saying we need lengthier notice periods, let's have a real public conversation and involve the community for the first time. Now, there's going to be some tension, maybe some back and forth, but ideally, and what we've actually seen in the four to five years under this model, is that law enforcement officials and other departments that use this equipment are able to use this equipment, and generally in the way that they wanted, but it's been narrowed a bit. You can put rules on this technology and still keep communities safe. Just because you put rules around these things doesn't mean cops can't use technology to make your community safer. This is just a balancing of interests. So, Aaliyah, you could start a civil liberties organization in your new neighborhood in L.A. Anyone can really do it. And in truth, one of the best ways to force Congress to act is for local and state governments to act. That really gets attention. We started this episode talking about the ghost of Christmas future. Yeah. I feel like that metaphor really works for this moment we're at with technology right now. I think so, too. I, I'm thinking about that moment. Bob, do you remember that moment in A Christmas Carol where the ghost of Christmas future and Scrooge are in the graveyard? Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, what are they doing? They're like walking to Scrooge's grave and they see it. And Scrooge points down and he says, before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be? Or are they shadows of things that may be only? And I feel like we are kind of Scrooge at that point right now, right? Looking ahead 10 years from now, and we're asking that question about privacy. Are these the shadows of the things that will be? Or are they the shadows of the things that may be only? And I think we have the power here. Is that dark future that we've talked about for six episodes inevitable? No, no, it can be changed. Absolutely, these are the shadows of things that may be only, and it's up to us to change the outcome. This is the final episode of No Place to Hide. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Intel, for caring about privacy as much as we do. If you liked what you heard, why don't you head on over to Apple Podcasts and review our show? Drop us some stars if you're really feeling it. It helps people find the show. No Place to Hide is a Spoke Media production, brought to you by Intel. It's hosted by me, Aaliyah Tabakolian, and Bob Sullivan. We're produced by Kelly Kolf, with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and our intern, Kendall Lake. Our story editor is Carson McCain. Today's episode was mixed by our senior engineer, Will Short, who also composed our opening and closing themes. The other songs you hear in this episode come from First Calm. Our executive producer is Keith Reynolds. And thank you to our actors. Aaron was played by Caroline Hamilton. Noah was played by Cameron Fuller. Michael was played by Will Short. And our ensemble cast included Carson McCain, Jenna Hannum, Trey Jones, Janiel Kastner, Cody Hoffmuckle, Reyes Mendoza, and Lee George. And a very special thanks to the folks you heard in today's episode. Nick Johnston, Cinziana Gutu, Christine Varney, Mark Groman, Susan Grant, Edmir Zwinski, Catherine Crump, and Brian Hofer. And lastly, thanks to Jonathan Thompson for recording us at Gold Diggers in LA. Thanks for listening.